Welcome everyone to the Modern Day Overthinker Podcast. My name is Colin and I'm your host. This week's episode is with Grace McCubbin. Grace is a speaker, she's a CEO, she's an advocate. She recently did a TEDx talk, which is going to be available here soon. It just happened a couple weeks ago here in Davenport, Iowa. We got to talk about a lot of different things. We started off by talking about the most recent event in her life that's that was very traumatic for her and something that she's learned a lot about since, and that is her 16-year-old son going into cardiac arrest very randomly earlier this year, and that was actually what her TEDx talk was about. So we talked about that as well as just her experience being a TEDx speaker and the process behind that. We also talked about trauma-induced OCD, generalized anxiety disorder, being a child of an alcoholic, authenticity, and the fact that no one has it all figured out. And also, we wrapped up by talking about advocating for yourself medically and being open and honest with your doctor. If you don't like your doctor, get a new one if you're able to do something like that. If you're in a position to do that, Remember, you're the patient, and they work for you. This was a solid one-hour episode. We did not do video for this. Grace explains that at the end of the podcast. It was kind of funny. I'm glad that she was able to make it, and we were able to do the audio because most of you are probably listening on Spotify or Apple. And If you are listening on Spotify or Apple, please leave a review if you like this podcast. If you have any suggestions, send me an email, mdoverthinker at gmail.com. I appreciate it. I appreciate everyone who listens, shares, and lets people know about this podcast because it's been a long run. I'm really looking forward to the future of the podcast and being able to have more awesome guests such as Grace in the future. So. Without further ado, this is episode number 76 of the Modern Day Overthinker podcast with Grace McCubbin. Welcome, everyone, to the Modern Day Overthinker podcast. My name is Colin, and I am your host. Today's episode is with Grace McCubbin, a speaker, activist, and CEO. She wears many hats, and I am going to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself here, Grace. I appreciate you being here, taking the time, and working with my schedule. Uh, That is a nice thing about probably being the boss is you get to have a little bit more flexibility. It is. It is absolutely. And thank you so much, Colin, for having me of on the show. I am the CEO of a recently founded startup in downtown Moline. And uh, yeah, it is awesome to be able to set my own hours. I bet. <laughs> Lifelong dream for sure. So the startup is just a couple months and yeah, launch, well, right? Oh well, yeah. I mean, we've been doing it on the side for like five years. Okay. But we officially turned it into like a full time thing back in February. Okay. And then we had like our formal grand opening just last week at our administrative office. You had a lot going on last week. A lot going on last week. So you had the launch, you had the TEDx talk. talk. How long was the in advance did you know you were doing that? Okay, so I don't know how those work. So yeah, so I actually don't know a lot about how they work either because I had a really non-traditional path to TED. So normally you apply to be a TED speaker. Got it. Right, and like uh, for instance, they told me at the Davenport TEDx that they got three thousand applications this year to speak, and they narrowed it down to ten speakers. Oh. Not, yeah, sorry. See? You're good. You're good. Okay, so they narrowed it down to 10 speakers, but I, they actually asked me to speak. They saw me on the news, oh. and they contacted me and were like, hey, like you were 
really compelling. Do you feel like you could do a TED talk? And I sort of was like, I guess. And I really didn't take it seriously because I, I didn't believe that it was real, I guess. I yeah. don't know. So I just kind of shrugged it off. And that was back in like, I don't know, March. Right. And then in May, the TEDx people reached out to me and were like, hey, like we're getting going with the plan. And like, you still down to speak in October? And I'm like, I guess. And next thing I know, they're sending me like speaker packets. And TED is really rigid. Okay. They, you have like a coach that reviews your talk. Like, there is nothing winging it about TEDx. Like, it has to be fully memorized. Like, you can't have notes or anything on your hand, like nothing. And you have to do it at rehearsal. And it has to be approved by TEDx. So you have to show up on that stage at rehearsal and deliver the talk that was approved. It can't be a different different talk. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. As a comedian, I don't like that at all. Yeah, and it's like 10 uh, 10 to 15 minutes. It's like a pretty rigid. They don't want anything shorter than 7 minutes, nothing longer than 10. 10 minutes of talking to memorize verbatim is insanity. It's a lot. It was a lot. It was. I had to do... I can't remember how long our speeches were when I was in middle school. We had to do memorized speeches. Oh, yeah. It's good practice for this. Yeah. And I always did horribly because <laughs> of the memorizing. I it's was like, not I don't easy. Wanna... I'm a freestyle guy. It's I... not easy yeah. to do. And honestly, I struggled a lot with it. And I know there were other speakers there at the rehearsal that were like not quite there. So did you when did you start preparing then? I mean, honestly, like they set these dates throughout the thing. So it was an ongoing process because you had to meet every deadline. Okay. Like every month there would be a deadline. Like the first month we had to turn in our outline. And then the next month we had to turn in, you know, our full body presentation. And then the next month you have to send in a recording of yourself. Yeah. And then they critique it every time and then you make changes. And I swear they just will like literally find something. You know, to, yeah. just because it's the process. They yeah, yeah. They can't tell you it's good too soon. Yeah, yeah. That would, you know. So how <laughs> long until you think you had it down? Like, where you're like. Okay, honestly, like three you, days. But yeah, I this is a strategy I've had since college. I call it like the pump and dump where I use note cards. Okay. And I chopped my talk up into like 10 different note cards and I did 10 specifically because I have 10 fingers. Okay. There you go. So when I'm on stage, I'm going through and I'm counting out those paragraphs. So I, I did 10 paragraphs and I memorized them out of order. So like I would know like paragraph number two, when I said the word two in my head, I could recall that paragraph that way when I'm on stage freaking out under the lights and I'm sweating like a freaking pig, I yeah, can just, lights. oh, they're so bright. You don't even know. And you're like yeah. instantly hot. Just, just from your head to your toe, you're just, you're just hot. Yeah. Like, like you can't escape. It's crazy. And then you're like walking around and you have to stay in this certain zone for the spotlight. Cause the spotlight doesn't move, but they don't want you to be still. Mm. So, so I'm like trying to remember my talk, trying to stay in this like light circle. Yeah really really intense but i only screwed up two times and the only person that noticed was my son because he had heard my talk so many times at that point that he was like i heard that Uh, yeah i was like and the talk was mainly based on your son correct it was it was it was based on his sudden cardiac arrest which is like insane for me to even say still out loud um but yeah, that is a really crazy story. Um, it actually happened earlier this year, mm-hmm. uh, February 24th, in fact, um, which was ironically 52 days after the sudden cardiac arrest of DeMar Hamlin, the NFL football player. Oh. So I don't know if you remember that, but I do. yeah, back in January, you know, he went into sudden cardiac arrest on national television. Mm-hmm. And like the, before they cut away, I mean, you actually saw them performing cpr on him and no one knew if he was going to live or not and you know it was nuts because when i when that happened i remember hearing about it i remember talking about it with people i remember thinking about like how crazy that was that that happened Mm -hmm. and then i remember thinking like gosh that's like got to be like getting struck by lightning right like it's often enough that you like know what it is but you could never imagine it happening to you because who gets struck by lightning like literally no one i don't know anyone 
Well, 52 days later, my 16-year-old son, and I just have to quantify, my son is like six feet tall, 170 pounds. He's not like overweight. He doesn't have any pre-existing health conditions. Yeah. just He's uh, just a normal, healthy teenage boy. And he wasn't, he's not an athlete. He doesn't play any sports and he wasn't on the athletic field or in gym class when this happened. He was sitting at his desk in study hall. Wow. And the bell rang and all the kids got up to leave and the teacher heard like a thump that that was like a weird thump and she turned around and my son was on the floor on his side, quote unquote, seizing. They thought initially that he was having a seizure, but in reality, Sudden cardiac arrest often mimics the symptoms of a seizure because your body goes into this state of distress where you're trying to breathe, but you can't because your heart stopped Mm -mm. and it kind of resembles a seizure. So luckily, and I mean, I can't express to you how lucky we were, honestly. Luckily, everyone at his school basically did everything right. Um, they called 911 right away. They got the school nurse. His school had AEDs on site, and one happened to be right outside of the classroom he collapsed in, which is just insanity. Yeah. Right? So by the time the nurse got to him, he was blue, hypoxic, had been um, without oxygen for three minutes. She started CPR, um, shocked him with the defibrillator. He required two shocks to be resuscitated. Got him to the ambulance. Now, I was out of town when this happened. Oh, that's... Oh, my God. Yeah. It's just the worst nightmare you yeah. can imagine, yeah. right? Now, luckily, I wasn't, like, super far. I was in Iowa City. Okay. And I was there with a friend of mine who was having, like, a small, like, dental procedure done where you're not, like, supposed to drive yourself home afterwards mm-hmm. um, because, you know, they give you, like, gas or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm recovering from a, <clears throat> a cold from two weeks ago still. Oh, you're good. But, um... Anyway, so I was, like, the, the relief driver. Yeah. So I was, like, literally, like, chilling in the car, waiting for her to be done with her thing, and then I was going to drive her home. And in the meantime, I was, like, taking care of some business on the phone. So when the first calls came in, I ignored them all. Sent them right to voicemail. Because that's what I do. I'm busy. Yeah. I get calls all the time yeah. from random unknown numbers for work, you know? Yeah. So I send everything to voicemail. Thank God for visual voicemail. Yeah. Where it, like, texts you. Yeah. Because I saw a problem with Maddox and immediately hung up and called, but in no way and for no, like, did I think anything serious? Yeah. Right. I'm thinking like he's sick. He needs to be picked up, whatever. Or is he getting in trouble ever? No. Oh. He's like seriously such a good kid. I do not know how or why because I was an absolutely horrific teenager. <laughs> and I mean, I literally got pregnant when I was 19 and had him. So like, yeah, it was not good. Um, I don't know how I got him. He's amazing. Uh, but no, it was the police calling me. Ooh. Yeah. And they were like, um, are you Maddox McCubbin's guardian? And I was like, yes, I'm his mom. And they were like, does he do drugs? Like, that's the first thing they said to me. I mean, fair question. I guess. And I was like, what? Because I mean, at that point, I don't even know what the fuck's going on. Yeah. You know, like, and I'm like, coming out of the gate do- with. <laughs> yeah. They came out of the gate with, does he do drugs? And I was like, uh, no. Like, I mean, I. I can, I'm just going to say no as confidently as the parent of a 16 year old can say no. Yeah. Right. Like 75% I'd, sure. Right. I'd be shocked, I guess, if he was. Um, and the police officer was like, well, he is uh, gone into some kind of seizure at school and the paramedics are going to Narcan him. And we just wanted to, you know, find out if you knew of any drug use or vaping. And I was like, no, like not at all. And at that point, I'm like, wait a minute. Like, what do you mean seizure? Like, is he okay? Like, and he was like, ma'am, all I can tell you right now is, or he was like, oh no, I remember I said, is he okay? Like what's going on? And he's like, well, no, he's unresponsive and um, they're going to getting ready to take him in an ambulance. Like what hospital do you want to go to? And I was like, wait a minute, they're taking him to the hospital. But I was like, is he alive? And the cop goes, ma'am, all I can tell you right now is that he is unresponsive. I mean, that was like Ugh. the moment of reality, right? Of like, oh my God, like this is like really happening and it's really serious and nobody knows anything. And that's when everything just like crumbled inside of me. I I have kind of spotty memories of the next like hour. So luckily for me, during that time when everyone was calling me and I was ignoring all the phone calls, they went down the list of emergency contacts and they also couldn't get a hold of my husband, who is notorious for ignoring all phone calls because he's awful. Um, and luckily, they got to our third contact, which is a really close friend of mine who happened to know my schedule that day. 
she knew I was in Iowa City doing this surgery thing with my friend. And when she got the call, she dropped everything she was doing and got in her car and just started driving toward Iowa City. She hadn't gotten a hold of me, didn't call me, knew nothing, just knew I was going to need somebody. Yeah. You know? And, and I just, I think about that all the time, like how lucky I am that she did that because by the time I actually got a hold of her, she was only like 20 minutes away. Because she hit the car. I mean, she didn't stop. She didn't pass go. She yeah. got in the car and she drove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's true friendship. I can tell you that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I vaguely remember going inside the hospital and having this terrifying, screamy conversation with the receptionist where I was trying to stay calm and like explain that I had the keys to the car to one of their patients and I had this emergency and I needed to leave. And, and I'm like trying to be calm, but I like I kept screaming. Like every couple of words, you know, I'd be like, I have these keys. They're for a patient. Ah, ah. Like, like I just couldn't conceptualize anything yeah, yeah, happening yeah. around me. Like it was crazy. And, and once I choked out enough for them to know what was going on, they were like, we will take the keys. We'll tell your friend it's okay. Like, can we help you? I'm like, no, my friend is coming. I just need to find my friend. And they're like, okay. So I made it to her car and I don't remember like a ton about the ride there. I remember she went way faster than she should have, which was yeah. another very nice thing of her to do. Um, but I, one thing I remember vividly is I kept hearing this like awful noise. And I, I at one point asked her, like, what is that noise? And like literally it was me. It was me. I was making the noise that I didn't even recognize coming out of my body. You're like hyperventilating? No. Um, so have you ever heard the term keening? I've heard it, but I don't remember what it means. So it's like the cry of a gri- of a grieving mother. It's oh. literally a term used to describe the sound that comes out of almost all mammals, not just humans, when their babies die. Like it's a sound. It's like an involuntary. Like I couldn't mimic the noise for you, but it was somewhere between like a like a cry, a scream, and like being strangled. Mm. I don't know. And it like comes from very deep in your throat. And I swear to God, I didn't even register that it was coming out of me. Yeah, because you didn't know what it was. It was like an out-of-body yeah. experience, you know? And then I arrived at the hospital. Now, the whole time, I had been on the phone with my mom and my husband, who obviously were also heading to the hospital and were going to get there much sooner than me Yeah, because they weren't out of town. And so I was, like, freaking out, like, send me videos, tell me what's going on, FaceTime me. I need to see what's going on. I need to see him. I need to see him. Because at that point, I was told that he had been resuscitated, but they didn't have any other information, you know? And so they're sending me these videos, and he is, like – not okay like he was super combative he wasn't letting them uh put any ivs in he was like kicking and punching and screaming incoherently like they couldn't get him calmed down um he kept like every time someone came near him he'd like just like karate chop like yeah from his bed like a crazy person and at that point they were kind of telling my mom and my husband that there was really no way for them to know if 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 this was like his new personality or not like they, there's no way to know about brain damage because so brain damage, you know, three minutes without oxygen, that's like the, that's the dividing line. Okay. That is like the point in oxygen deprivation when neurons suffer way more extensive damage. Okay. And, you know, lasting brain damage becomes likely at that point, four mm-hmm. minutes, permanent brain damage has occurred. And at five minutes, brain death's imminent. Okay. So this is like, yeah, they have no way of knowing, you know? So I get there and I burst into the emergency room like a total psychopath screaming his name. And I could hear him screaming from like across the hospital. And I'm just running. Maddox, I'm yelling his name. Maddox, I'm here. I'm here. And I like burst into the room and I scream his name and he sticks his arms like straight up in the air and I run over and he like grabs me and just pulls my whole body down on top of him and just starts like sobbing into my ear. And immediately, and the machine, like, all of his vitals, like, instantly calmed. Instantly. The nurses were like, holy shit, you stay right there. Don't move. Mom, don't move. Like, he clearly, so then the doctors are like, he was looking for you. He was freaking out because you were not here. Like, somewhere in his foggy mind, he knew his mom wasn't there, and he knew he needed his mom, and he wasn't going to calm down until I got there. And I sat there and laid on top of him while they did all of his IVs, all the procedures and he stayed perfectly calm and still. And then about 90 minutes later, he like woke up for real, like, and started talking again. And 
uh, within a couple hours, he passed like all of his neurological exams. So they were pretty much like he's fully recovered. He never had to be intubated. Wow. Okay. He like was up and moving the next day. Six days after his arrest, they implanted a device in his chest called the cardioverter uh, defibrillator implantable. Mm. It's called an ICD. And essentially, if his heart ever stops again, it will shock it back. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Six days after his sudden cardiac arrest, we got out of the hospital and went home. And 12 days later, he was on stage at his high school starring in their production of The Wizard of Oz. I am literally not making that up. (laughs) So, um, but the moral of the story is what the hell happened? Yeah. How could this happen? Yeah. Right? Because that's the part of the story that everybody's like, so how did this happen? Yeah. And the answer is the reason that they asked me to do a TED Talk. The answer is no one knows. Okay? And here's what I found out. Get ready to get a little bit nervous. And I'm sorry I might ruin your evening. Okay? Sudden cardiac arrest is the third leading cause of natural death in the United States. Okay? It is not new. They've been studying it as a phenomenon for over 30 years. Okay? Uh, It kills... Almost 400,000 Americans annually, which is more than car accidents and breast cancer combined. Isn't that Mm. wild? Do you hear about it that often? No. No, which is crazy. I started hearing about it the last couple of years, though. I bet. And I bet you're going to hear about it more and more as there are more and more public occurrences. But the reality is that it's a silent, pervasive killer in our community and no one's talking about it. And the result of no one talking about it is that there's no protective legislation. And what I mean by that is, so like smoke detectors and fire extinguishers, those are required by law on a federal level mm-hmm. in places where people gather, okay? Not just schools, like rentals, you're going to rent an apartment, they're going to force you on that on you. You get a first-time homeowner's loan, they make sure you have fire and smoke est- uh, detectors, which mm-hmm. is like, I mean... Yeah, standard. Yeah, yeah, right? And nobody even blinks at that, right? So... Even though statistically a school is more likely to have a student go into cardiac arrest than they are to have a fire in the building, you're going to find fire prevention in the form of smoke detectors and fire extinguishers in those school buildings in all 52 states. Only in 20 states are they required to have AEDs. What does AED stand for again? That's the defibrillator that saved my son's life. Okay. Okay. So an what AED. Is that, what does it stand for now? Okay. So this is horrific, but I just have the hardest time remembering what AED. But I know I have too many acronyms. In my yeah, brain. I have too many yeah. acronyms, but I know it's emergency defibrillator. Okay. Automatic. I think it's automatic emergency defibrillator. Okay. okay. And what's cool about AEDs is that you don't have to know how to use it. The machine instructs you how to use it. You literally turn it on and it tells you what to do. It's got graphics that show you where to place the pads. It tells you when to push the button. It's literally like a child could could do it. Good. You know, mm-hmm. and um, the fact that sudden cardiac arrest occurs so frequently and the fact that they're not like federally mandated literally anywhere is just bizarre. It's just it's unusual for our culture. And the best guess, because I've talked to a lot of people about this, I I volunteer with Project Adam. I also have like a really close relationship with Maddox's cardiologists, and I, Maddox is my son, Maddox's cardiologists in Iowa City, who are also like super involved in, you know, spreading awareness about sudden cardiac arrest. And they have told me that their best guess is that sudden cardiac arrest is too frightening for parents, especially. Right. You find out that this you, there's this really high risk thing of death. Right. And then you find out there's literally nothing you can do to prevent it. Nothing. So what is easier? Is it easier to fight this battle to make everyone properly afraid of it so we can get the things we need? Or is it easier to just stick your head in the sand and convince yourself that that's never going to happen to you? Because I can tell you what I did for 16 years. Yeah, you didn't think that was ever going to happen. Hell no. And if you would have told me that that was even a risk for my kid, I definitely would have just like nodded and smiled and then internally been like, well, not my kid. Hmm. My kid's fine. Okay? But the reality is is nobody's fine. Nobody's fine. And and the thing is, is sudden cardiac arrest is not a heart attack, right? People get that really confused. Okay? They, yeah. they think it's like the same thing. But a heart attack is a blockage in the heart, right? A heart attack happens for a lot of different reasons, but a lot of times it's associated with a cause. heart disease, smoking, being overweight, all of those yeah. things. Sudden cardiac arrest is not associated with any of those things, and there are no risk factors and no predictive tests. My son had a clean EKG and echocardiogram in the ER right after his sudden cardiac arrest. 
Yeah, so it's just like it's like an aneurysm almost. It is absolutely, and it's completely random and unpredictable. He has had every type of testing that you can have: congenital, environmental, genetic. We've done genetic testing all the way up to my great grandparents, and we have found absolutely nothing that would explain this. Nothing. Have you had any conspiracy people ask yes, you about the vaccine? I have, and actually, it was one of the first questions that I asked his cardiologist. Okay. Yeah. And his cardiologist that, gave me... that's been going around in the... Well, uh, he gave me a really good answer. Yeah. One that's pretty hard to refute, honestly. And yeah. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, so it wasn't that easy to convince me, to be honest. But um, because, honestly, if rich, powerful people were going to make a vaccine to kill us all, why would they... Why wouldn't... Why would they kill the compliant people? Like, hello? Do you get what I mean? Yeah. If you're going to kill off half the population, what are you going to do? The ones that willingly take the death shot or the rebels that won't do what they're told? Who are you going to keep alive? Yeah. I mean, just being honest. But anyway, so I asked the um, the doctor about that, of course, because if I got my son this vaccine and that's what caused this to happen, like, I want to know. And the doctor gave me a wonderful answer. And he basically said, listen, I, I can't, like, speak to you in absolutes, right? Because yeah. nothing in life is absolute. He's like, but I'm going to tell you this right now. Sudden cardiac arrest is not new. The, co- the COVID vaccine is. COVID vaccine is a year and a half old. They've been studying sudden cardiac arrest as a national phenomenon for over 30 years. And that's just how long they've been acknowledging like, whoa, this is happening a lot, right? It was happening before that. A lot of times it went misdiagnosed when people would die suddenly. Like if you've heard of sudden unexpected death in adulthood, SADS or whatever it's called, or SUDS, that is almost always sudden cardiac arrest. They can't always find evidence of that in an autopsy. Mm. You see? If they're not there when it happens. So anyway, the point is, is the doctor basically said, there's nothing, there's no, I've seen no evidence that would make me reconsider getting this vaccine for myself or my children. And he is the preeminent pediatric cardiologist in the country. His name's Dr. Ian Law, and he works out of the University of Iowa hospitals. And he's doing a rotation there, which is the only reason we have him. He literally wrote the book on pediatric arrhythmia, told me he would still get the shot for his children. And himself. Hmm. That was good enough for me. Yeah. That dude's way smarter than me. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. knows a lot more about what's in that shot and how it affects the body yeah. than I do. And and I mean, at some point, we have to accept the answers of experts, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I totally get it. I have a conspiracy brain, but I don't want to shut it off. Listen, I also have a conspiracy brain, just not for dumb stuff, okay? Yeah. I had a PowerPoint party over the summer where the theme was... What conspiracy theory do you actually believe and why? Yeah. I got second place. You want to know what mine was? What was it? Now, remember, this is what you actually believe. So I'm standing by this. Okay. I have a whole PowerPoint on it. You're down on the hill. Okay. Billionaires are terraforming Mars and are 100% going to leave us here to burn when the planet's dead. And I think it's going to happen in like 20 to 30 years. Yeah. So you know how Elon Musk is always talking about like, yeah, we're going to go to Mars. We're going to terraform it. His bitch ass is definitely already there. (laughs) You know how many rockets they are sending out? SpaceX? They got a whole thing going on. You think, tell me, why would people like the Kardashians keep just spitting out children onto a dead planet? Why? Because they have tickets on SpaceX. They going. They going to Mars. I bet there's a whole little terrarium there. So my whole life goal, my whole reason for starting a startup, and I wish I was kidding, and I'm sure there's mental illness involved in this, but... I'm going to get rich enough to get on that rocket. Yeah. Taking my babies. We getting out of here. <laughs> going to Mars. Hell yeah. That's it. I mean, that's legitimate. I, right? I, I Yeah. I can get behind that. I'm not going to tell you mine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to tell you no, mine. No, no. It's not for, the, not for this audience. Not for the week. No. Uh, um, I have a couple, but... Uh, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole either. Oh, my God. Uh, I could take you down a lot of rabbit holes. Well, I appreciate you sharing that story. Yeah, it's probably, yeah. It's a big one. It's a huge story. And it's not a very unique story because it's like I never would have expected that to happen to a 16-year-old that's right. healthy. That's, yeah. you know, not even like in the middle of, you know, him doing something strenuous. Right. He doesn't even have, like, asthma or any of that, you know? And he wasn't, like, running or, like, Literally chilling in study hall. Wasn't even excited. Like, like, they kept asking him if he remembered anything leading up to it. 
And he said all he remembers was like just being bored in class and then his heart started beating really fast and then he woke up in, in the hospital. That was it. Yeah. It's so bizarre. I know. It's completely baffling. And like we have no heart stuff in our families, neither of us. Yeah. Like nobody's ever had anybody die of a heart attack or a stroke or had any heart disease, like no heart cancers, like nothing. There's no heart stuff. I was never afraid of heart stuff. Like I have other stuff in my family's medical history that I was totally afraid of that we talk about to doctors that we've been monitoring our children for and none of it was that. Yeah, that is <laughs> man. Uh, well, let's shift a little bit. I was going to say, talk about triggering your mental illness. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because, uh, you seem to be like, well, you have OCD, so you're a worrier. Uh, and you question a lot of things. (laughs) That's just a part of what happens when you have OCD. It's true. And also have general anxiety and those, yeah. those two like to party. Oh yeah. Cause it's an, OCD is an anxiety disorder. Yeah, so they just like, they love it. Yeah, they do. They hang they out. They're besties. Oh yeah. They feed each other. Ugh. Yep. I know all about that. <laughs> and, uh, so with OCD, when, cause it's always different because like some people are diagnosed really young. Some people it's later in life and they didn't really know what it was. Later well, in life for me, too. Later in life. Oh, everything was like later in life. Yeah. I definitely spent the majority of my childhood and young adulthood with like the dumpster fire meme of like, everything's fine. Yeah. This is fine. Yeah. Like, I just thought that's how people lived. Like, I just thought that was okay. And I think that's maybe like symptomatic of being raised by boomers. Right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Just bury it. <laughs> yeah. Just bury it. Like, we don't, we don't talk about that. Like, you know, or like, that was weird. You shouldn't say that again. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, just stuff like that. Um, I think that my mom and dad um, did the best that they could. And when I say that, I say my mom and my stepdad, because as you already know, my biological dad was a like severe alcoholic who essentially drank himself to death when I was 27. And so, um, yeah, I feel like my whole life and upbringing have been rooted in trauma. And I, my, the basis of my OCD diagnosis is trauma induced OCD and PTSD. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes yeah. mine was like puberty induced. Oh, that's yeah. When I, that's when mine hit when sure. I was like 13, 14 and just like, boom, you have this weird questionable disorder where you just <laughs> totally want to say what if, what if to everything. Well, and I think Not that there's but. definitely a genetic component to this because I'm seeing a ton of the same anxiety symptoms in my son that mm. I that I have, which my son doesn't have the traumatic upbringing that I do. Like if you talk to my therapist, she'd be like, there's like a million reasons why Grace has these problems. Like my therapist, I remember my second session called me a deeply traumatized person mm. and that, you know, she was sorry. And I'm not trying to victimize myself, but like I've been through some stuff yeah. and I've seen some stuff. And there is a really perfectly legitimate reason why my brain decided to mush itself up into PTSD and OCD and mm. generalized anxiety. But my son doesn't have that. My son was, yes, I mean, I guess it's traumatic to be birthed by a teenager. <laughs> it's probably not like the best. But, but I stayed with his dad. Like we're we're together. Like yeah. like I'm married to him. Which yeah. is like crazy, right? We have another kid together. We've been together for almost 20 years. We've had a very loving and healthy marriage. Um We both uh, finished college, had Mm -hmm. good careers. Our children have known nothing but like love and support and contentment by two married parents, which I feel like is rare. Yeah, it is. He's still an anxiety riddled freak. (laughs) No, you know what I mean? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter as much as I thought it would. You know what I mean? Like, I really thought my kids would be safe if I raised, if I did all the right things, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I thought to myself, I, you know, as a traumatized child, I can definitely tell you how not to parent, right? Yeah. yeah. And then I'm going to do gonna all do the opposite. The, yeah. And like my parents did a ton of good things. So I'm going to yeah. keep all of those. Yeah. Right? Keep those. But yeah. I'm going to dump all this bad stuff and I'm going to do everything the right way. And I'm going to shield my children from all of this. And I did. And it still didn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it's. Right. Yeah. More than likely. Yeah. It's just. I mean, I'm sure that it goes back a long way in my genetic line, which would explain why my dad was an alcoholic and his dad was an alcoholic. Yeah, and he his was dad. He wasn't just drinking just because it was fun. No. And that's the thing. Like, I, I think that 
I broke the cycle in my family. So I'm literally from like a long line of alcoholics. I think I'm the first one that's not an alcoholic in like, because I know my dad, my grandpa and my great grandpa raging and the grandmas, the spouses of each. Oh, really? Yes. Raging. So like, I think I am like the first generation to like break that cycle of alcohol addiction, but I'm definitely like addicted to other stuff. Cause that could be, yeah, that could be very genetic. Yeah. And I think addiction is, is addiction. I don't think it, uh, they just happen to choose alcohol. That's how I, I feel about it. And I think that that the as an addict myself. and watching yeah. the effect of alcohol on them, I think is what steered me away from it. And oh, yeah. I found other I've stuff met a to lot, get. I've met a lot of people like that. Yeah. Yeah, and like you know, I I've messed around with other stuff. I think getting addicted to success mm. and to competition and to work. I have a huge issue with work, like workaholism. Oh, I don't yeah. know what to call that. Yeah. But my husband does too, and Ooh. we like enable each other. So it's it's yeah. <laughs> like the one thing we've done to like combat like that and try to not be as I don't know siloed about it is we we have a shared office now at home, so we both sit in there side by side wow. while we work till nine o'clock. I don't know if it's better or worse, but at least we're together. What does he do? So, well, he is a manufacturing engineer. He's the director of engineering at Innovative Machine, which is a machine shop in Geneseo. Okay. And then he's also the director of engineering for my company, Darmok Designs. Okay. And as soon as we can afford him, <laughs> he will quit there and work for us full time. But right now he's kind of juggling both. But don't feel bad for him because he likes it. It's fun. He likes it. Oh, I wasn't going to feel bad for him. <laughs> <laughs> he's... He's old enough to make his own decisions. He is, but you know, everybody always wants to feel bad for poor Tom because he's like, you know, the nice one in the relationship. I'm like the crazy intense one. <laughs> so everybody's always wanting to like, you know, take uh, a load off, buddy. I know your life's hard. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, let's talk about the like owning your own business and getting yeah. that up and going and the just and then you talked about success. I want to talk about that a little bit too cuz we talked about that before we got on the podcast and yeah. uh, you know, Having, you know, mental illness and dealing with some of the things that you've dealt with and still combating that and being successful while also being aware that you have those things and have to deal with those things your whole life. So when you started the business, were you how when did that seed get planted? Like, I'm going to. Yeah, because it gets planted. I know how it goes. Totally. And you're like, I. Was it a young age? Like, I'm all, I want to do something on my own, or was it like well, working I in corporate people, America? Because I know you were in corporate America. I was. Yeah, I was so. in corporate America. So I always tell people I started my first business in fourth grade, um, and yeah. in an act of rebellion, my mom and dad wouldn't let me walk. They wouldn't give me any money. I wanted to walk to the quick shop that was like two blocks from our house mm-hmm. and buy little debbies you know they're like a quarter oh hell yeah, yeah. they wouldn't give me any money and they were like no like go away you know yeah you gotta get that I money yes yeah i needed money so i like got a bunch of rocks out of the alley behind my house and like painted them with nail polish and i literally went door to door i made it to three houses and made 45 cents before a neighbor called my mom and i got in trouble but i'm saying i got I got my brownies, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I got my... And cosmic, was, cosmic brownies? Yeah, cosmic brownies. There you go. I, I'm still a cosmic brownie <sighs> weirdo. Like, if you ever come down to our office, Darmok Designs in downtown Moline, I, like, legit guarantee you we have a cosmic brownie in the break room fridge <laughs> ready. There you go. Um, but for real, like, that gave me the taste of independence of, like, something is in my way and I want to get there like i can fa- forge a path for myself um like i started having yard sales of my just my toys like i said like, i did that car- too <laughs> i'd sell like a card table out i think that's how you know you're an entrepreneur <laughs> yeah. when you like sell your stuff my parents would be like what are you doing yeah like nobody wants your broken barbie and i'm like i made 11 dollars. like uh, yeah shut up <laughs> or just the, the traditional kool-aid route i went that route as well yeah i mean I, I whatever I, my mom would like never let me never let me do the lemonade she's like nobody's gonna buy lemonade from gross little kids you're not gonna do that so i always said i always had to find other other stuff to do but so i think that this desire to like have my own business and be my own boss has always been within me and then i think when i had my son at 19 i sort of felt this pressure to like succeed quickly because everybody basically told me that i screwed up my whole life and that now i was going to be nothing and a gas station clerk and you might as well just like give up now yeah 
So I think I had this like spite. really, yeah, I think I was fueled by spite, which is how I got into corporate America, right? Because that's like the quickest way to like prove everyone wrong that like, look at how great I am. And so I eventually became, you know, I was like the go-to-market vice president for a startup inside of Capital One. And I'm like on the outside living the dream, right? I'm wearing like business suits and carrying expensive purses and traveling all over the country and sometimes internationally for business and staying at like the Ritz Carlton in Santa Barbara and like things like that, like having massive imposter syndrome and like really thinking like, okay, this is like the pinnacle, right? Like this is. Yeah. And then as I'm sitting in like the 17th meeting that I had to have with our legal department to get approval to change like the grammar on an online, like on a portion of the website for the startup I was doing, I had this revelation of like, look what's happening. I have literally had 17 meetings with a group of adults to decide whether we can change there to there. Oh my God. No. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I literally, yeah. Like I had this moment of like, what am I doing? And so I ended up getting in trouble because in this meeting, I like, I sort of lost it a little bit. And I was like, Gary, I'm going to stop you right there. Because what happened was we were nearing the end of the call. And it was like, okay, so are we in consensus that we're good with this? We're just going to put this to bed. We're going to move forward. And I'm over here like, yeah, yeah, right. Should have been done with this 16 calls ago. And we're almost there. And then somebody pipes up, fucking Gary. okay, (laughs) And he's like, I don't know. Do you think we should get Sheila involved? Do you think we should just run it past her? And like, that's what broke me. Like, it just broke me. And I was like, Gary, I'm going to stop you right there. And I'm just going to ask you, do you, have you heard yourself? Do you, are you processing in your brain emotionally what's actually happening right now? And he just like stared at me through Zoom, you know? (laughs) And I'm like, Gary, you realize that we are 16 adults on a Zoom call arguing over whether we should have an apostrophe in there or not. And I just, I feel so strongly about this. Like, do you have time for this, Gary? I don't have time. And I know Sharon doesn't have time. I feel like we are creating reasons to have meetings to justify our jobs. And I don't want to be a part of this. And I like hung up really fast and instantly my phone started ringing. And I, I got like a verbal reprimand from my my boss which i i commend them for because she basically was like listen your complaint is not like unwarranted your delivery just wasn't very good mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> like yeah. but that was definitely like the moment where i like was like i i have to quit or i'm going to die because i'm just going to keep doing that i'm just going to keep unloading on these poor little robots which i feel like there's those people in life like i i like you know, there's like hunters and prey. Like I hate to say it, mm-hmm. and prey. I feel like those are the those are those are prey. The people that will go to 16 meetings to get a comma approved. Yeah, this is not the life I'm gonna live. Yeah, and I know now because I've not only from Capital One, I've worked for other larger companies. I know now that that's just what happens when a company gets too big to see itself. You create all these weird little layers of management and people are like weird about power. You give them a little bit and they just have to like wield it like. Oh, yeah. Intensely, you know, like the comma police because, you know, I've got this promotion on my defensive commas. So. No, I totally get it. I've been in corporate America for a little over six, six, seven years. Right. And see, like the robots of the world, like I can't function with them. I. I don't work like that. I and, and I knew that the only way that I could ever have a job that would be fulfilling and would allow me to put all of these crazy ideas I've had about how to run a business and how to run a sales team into practice was to go into business for myself. Mm-hmm. And I really honestly felt like I had to wait until I had enough years under my belt to be taken seriously. That's the only thing that's been stopping me. And finally now I'm, you know, almost 20 years and all right. Let's get it. Because I started selling college, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. What was your first sales job? Oh, my God. I mean, okay. So, obviously, I had some, like, retail stuff in high school. But yeah. my first real yeah. sales yeah, job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, when I was in college. Hardcore. 
Okay. Have you ever heard of Pure Romance? Oh, I have. Okay. So Pure Romance is, you know, a company that sells women's bedroom products. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Products designed to spice up the lives of couples. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was in college, we were like dirt poor, had a kid, everything sucked. But I was going to school full time and having a traditional job was kind of out the window. And one of my friends bullied me into going to her sex toy party. Mm. She, I was like, not interested in going. I don't have any money. Like, whatever. Not yeah, yeah, that's exactly. She's like, you don't have to buy anything. You're just funny. You're like my funny friend. So you have to come and like mm. drink and keep the conversation going. And I'm like, now I'm flattered. So yeah. I'll go. Right? <laughs> yeah. So thank God I did because the the sales lady was like awkward. Like it was bad. And I felt like I had to like jump in and make jokes and like help her to like save my friend's party because I felt bad. And then at the end of the night, she made like, I don't know, like a thousand dollars. And everybody was coming up to me like, I only bought stuff because I had so much fun listening to you and joking and laughing. And it just like got me in the mood. Mm. And I went home that night and I've always been like absolutely insane and (laughs) very like, I'm, you know, jump in, think about it later kind of person. I came home and I was like, hey, to my husband, I know we only have $200 left in our savings account, but it so happens that this startup kit for the sex toy company is $200. Like, can I buy this and start selling sex toys? And my husband, bless his heart, it was like, okay. (laughs) Oh my God. So 10 months, by the way, 10 months later, I had sold $45,000 worth of sex toys. I had gotten a letter from Pure Romance with like, so they sent me a cookie basket Mm. with a big card in it that said, who are you? Mm. (laughs) So that was my first sales job. And that was, that's awesome. Well, and I was in school at the time to be a teacher. Oh, okay. And so I'm, I'm having this insane success as a dildo salesperson Mm, of all things. And I'm like legitimately. Sales gives you that rush, though. Yeah, it does. And I'm legitimately making like really good money. And my husband, I'm getting close to graduation, and I'm like, I don't know if I will make this much money teaching. Like, I I'm not actually sure, you know, because at that time, I was looking at like a thirty thousand dollars salary probably starting out of college for teaching. Yeah. Um, I was you know making over forty already selling sex toys. You know, like, so, um, we had this like discussion and my husband was basically like, well, whatever you want to do. And in this like insane turn of events, and I literally, all of my counselors made me like sit down. They had like an intervention with me because everyone was shocked, but I completed my program, but I didn't get licensed. I didn't sit for any licensure exams or get any of my certifications for teaching. And when I withdrew from all of that at the end, they like all sat me down. Like, what are you doing? Like, why aren't you getting anything? I was like, I don't want to teach anymore. And they're like you're done. Like you're done. Like you've done all the things you're done. And I'm like, I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, what? So again, crazy person. Right. Um, I instead went and tried to get like a professional sales job because after having a taste of that, I realized that on your resume has got to be fun. You know, it was because fun at combo. first I had to put it because I didn't have anything. Yeah. Else, you had to. Right. That. I yeah. had to. Um, it's, and then it's after that, job though well and then once you get to a certain point in your career you get to like you know you get to laugh about it yeah, yeah. and people love it but at yeah. the beginning it's kind of like sketchy yeah. you're like no i swear to god it was like real sales yeah. um but i worked for enterprise rent a car okay. did you know you have a bachelor's degree to work there uh i that yeah. doesn't surprise me they those take people, a lot of people yeah those people getting you your keys and like scraping the fucking puke out of the car they have a bachelor's degree yeah. and, and they make $11 an hour and they hate their lives. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. So that's where I worked and I did really well, immediately got promoted into business rental sales, did like $2 million against a $500,000 quota like my first year. And I've just been screaming along ever since. Like I went from there to selling office technology, which was like printers, copiers, software. Yeah. I did that for almost a decade and totally annihilated it i was in the top five almost every year won tons of trips overseas made more money than i ever thought that i would be able to make at that time in my life um and then just kept like going and going and going until i woke up one day and realized i was a shell (laughs) and i hated my life yeah and i had everything that i wanted yeah (laughs) you know what i mean like what 
how disappointing, you know? Yeah. And then that's when I realized I didn't have any of the things I wanted. I instead had all of the things that everybody told me yeah. that I was supposed to want. Poster syndrome. All day long. And that is another facet of generalized anxiety, OCD, PTSD, is that imposter syndrome. That voice in your ear that's always telling you, like, you're not good enough. You're they're going to find out that you're a weird loser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any minute. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm telling you, there were so many times at Capital One where I have no idea how they did not figure out that I was a weird loser. <laughs> like, I did so much weird stuff. Okay, I have this great story. Everyone begs me to tell it because it's one of my best. We call it, it has a title. Any story that has like a title <laughs> that you can bring up, people are like, what? So this is called The Milk, okay? So I, I was on a business trip. Now, again, I have generalized anxiety, OCD, all these issues, and they all go with me on business trips. And so I have mm-hmm. a lot of like rituals and routines yeah. that I do to stay not insane. Mm-hmm. When I'm on the road for work. And one of them is that, like, I have weird stuff about food. And, like, Capital One is super weird about food. They cater in everything, and it's always, like, incredibly elaborate. Like, they'll serve you, like, falafel and, like, sprouts. And, like, I am more of, like, a spam and, like, mac and cheese girl. Like, I just have no palate. I was raised in the 90s. I was by myself all the time. I was raised on Kraft mac and cheese. My parents were never home. Like, I exist on, like, salt and carbs. So this is, like, horrific for me. So every time I would go on a business trip, I would always, like, like Instacart, like, small items to keep in my room. And I would, like, you know, shove gr- granola bars and cereal and shit down my throat. And then I'd go to these meals and, like, eat my little bites so I wouldn't look weird. And that's how I got through it. Okay? Yeah. Well... I ordered my Instacart order. And the way that I did this was I would always like sneak off early from the first night's dinner and like tunnel up to my hotel room and then like secretly get the order and like run up to my room while everyone was still like doing stuff. Yeah. So that no one would see me being weird because they're like, they provide you food. What are you doing? It's like, mind your own business, Carol. Yeah. Not asking you to pay for it. Yeah. You know? So anyway, I order all these groceries and in part of the grocery order, I ordered a pint of milk. You know, like a little carton yeah, that would yeah. come in, like in your lunchbox yeah. to go with the little single serving bowl of cereal that yeah. I bought. And this DoorDash driver shows up with a gallon of milk. <laughs> okay, I'm in the lobby of this hotel, this five star fancy ass hotel. Like literally 20 feet away is the hotel bar where all of my coworkers are like drunkenly yeehawing. Because that's another thing. A lot of times they let you bring it up to the room. Not this guy. He would not bring it up to the room. He made me come downstairs and I was Shame. pissed. Yeah. So I'm trying to scurry and he tries to hand me a gallon of milk and I'm like, absolutely not. I, not only did I not order that, but where do you think I'm going to put that in a hotel room, sir? Like, no, I'm not taking it. And he's like, mom, this is yours. You're taking it. And he like shoved it into my hand and then like ran away. So now I'm standing. Did you get a big box of cereal too? No, I had my tiny little bowl (laughs) and my my granola bars. Like, you know, just a small sack of appropriate hotel room items and then a gallon of milk. So now I'm freaking out and I don't know what to do. And I like look at the lady behind the desk and I'm like, can you take this milk? And she's like, no. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my God. So I like run as fast as I can to the elevator. And I'm like, if I just make it up to my room, everything will be fine. Like, no one's ever going to know. It's not a big deal. I'll dump it out, throw it away. It'll be over. The minute, the minute I get on the elevator, the doors close, and I'm, like, relaxing because I'm like, okay, I made it. No. One second later, ding, doors open. Guess who's standing there? My boss. Yep, my boss. It's 10 o'clock at night. I'm in full troll mode because I've already, like, taken off all my makeup. I've got, like, my top knot, my sweatpants. I'm disgusting. And I'm clutching a gallon of milk like a freaking gremlin (laughs) in the hotel elevator. And she just looks at me, and she's like, Grace, why do you have a gallon of milk? And I'm like, Jessica, just shoot me in the head. And then I ran away. And then had to, like, text her the whole Long story like a psycho. So anyway, the point of the story is that if someone like me can have a high-powered, high-paying job, you can too. Yeah. That's a good way to end it right there. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. The milk story. It's, I mean, it's just, yeah. I have a lot of stories like that that involve me just like humiliating myself horrifically. 
Yeah. Fun stuff. It builds confidence. It builds something. It does. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. once you've embarrassed yourself to a certain point. Oh, yeah. yeah. You're just not afraid of it. You're untouchable. Yeah. You're untouchable. Yeah. I am. I am totally, I'm the golden god in that department. Yeah. It's like, oh. you're not going to be able to embarrass me no. more than I can embarrass myself. Absolutely. I already told everyone here that I'm mentally ill. What do you got? Yeah. <laughs> it's true. I, I. Oh, and you can't be meaner to me than I am. Yeah, I have that too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, so try. Yeah, it's funny. Like, people, I've been doing comedy, people try to, like, roast me and shit. And I'm just like, yeah, not bad, but, like, it's like, I just, like, shrug it off so easily. You know, it's so crazy to me because when I was, like, new in my career, and especially in sales, you have this kind of, like, you know, you're terrified, right? Because it's oh. really scary at first, especially yeah. in sales. You're, like, terrified, and you have this. Numbers and all that shit. Well, and you have this, like, you have to put out this swagger, right, mm. to get through it. Because if people notice that you're, like, off at all, they're well, being like going to shut Well, that's down. what you think. Well, that's, that's, what you, what that's we, in your head. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I found out that in reality, it was crazy because, you know, 20 years in, and now I'm developing this, like, sales training program mm. that I'm, like, selling to other people. And I've discovered that, like, the key to success truly is vulnerability. I had no idea. I had no idea that just admitting that I was the dumbest person alive was how to get people to trust you. But it is. Because at the end of the day, people buy from people they like and people they trust. And if you can come into a scenario and say, listen, I'll be honest with you, I don't know shit about that. (laughs) However, I will work harder to find out for you than anyone else. And you know what? You're not going to, I'm not going to be smarter than you about it. We're going to learn together. Yeah. People really like that authenticity and they really like that when people show their humanity and when we take those walls down and like that polished veneer and just kind of present ourselves in like the human realm, that's when like real success happens. And it's the opposite of how I thought it would be. Like when I was young and starting off in sales, I thought like the pinnacle was where you were like you had to be the polished, polished yeah. business suit and you're like pulling up in a Corvette and you're like, I don't have time, guy. Uh, yeah. No. And in reality, it's pulling up like two minutes late and having like your hair like in your face and coming in and being like, you guys, I'm sorry. I'm just a hot mess. Yeah. And they're, they're so much more forgiving to that person than they are to Hot Rod. Yeah. Like. All day, every day. Like, this guy's a douche. Exactly. Yeah. A total douche. Yeah. Like, and nobody likes a douche. No. But you know what? Everybody likes, you know, a friendly mom that's just going to give them the real deal. Right? Just yeah. be honest. Just yeah. tell them the truth. Yeah. Yeah, authenticity is huge. I've had an episode where we talked about that, like, almost the whole time, and it's... It's huge, and you can't fake it. No. And that's what's so difficult. Right. About about it, like about using it as a sales technique, because you can't fake it. There's a lot of things in sales you can fake and you should. Right. Fake it till you make it like fake your confidence, fake your energy level, whatever. But you just can't fake authenticity. And it's it's one of the harder, I think, skills to master. And it involves like a tremendous amount of confidence, which seems backwards. Yeah. Right. Because, like, don't you instinctually think that, like, this whiny, insane person that tells you all of her problems is actually, like, stupid and ineffectual? But no. In reality, people see that as strength. Like, when you admit that you don't actually have it together and that you're just stumbling through it just like they are. It's like that human connection, the camaraderie that... Nobody has it all figured out. Not even close. But man, do we convince ourselves that people do. I know I do. And like, that's one of the reasons why I've started admitting this because I've had people like my employee, Lauren, tell me that they're inspired by me and intimidated by me. And they think that I am like, you know, this unflappable boss person. And I'm just like, boggled <laughs> to, to hear that someone would think that about me like i'm over here like sweating what are you talking about <laughs> you know lauren actually was uh I, i'll blow some smoke up her ass <laughs> she's actually the her episode is the top episode i've ever had that's so cool yeah i'll have to listen to it it like i don't know but it's all i don't know what ha- if there was a i know it was doing well anyway, but all of a sudden it spiked in just one location. And I don't know why I still have to ask her about it. Huh. And it's like, I don't know if it was a, 
I don't think it's a glitch because I didn't do any like weird marketing stuff. Like, you know, where you're like pay some yeah. people pay people for listens and Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. I didn't do anything like that. So I'm like, I don't know what happened, but uh, yeah, because but she was super raw. Oh, she's super such a compelling person. And uh, yeah, her, with a conversation about medication and like not wanting to take the medication yes. and um, is so relatable. Hundred percent. Like she didn't want to deal with the side effects, and it took me years to get on a medication regimen that worked. I kept like taking them till I felt better, mm-hmm. and then stopping. And then I felt better, and you stopped. Well, taking you don't them. need them anymore. I don't need them, but because I'm better now, yeah. don't you know? Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's complete insanity. I've done it totally. before, and I've watched people do it, and I'm just like, oh. You felt better because they were working. Exactly. And I feel like some of that is like maturity. Some of it is also advocating for yourself medically, though. Yeah. Because sometimes you don't realize, like, you're supposed to tell them, like, when this unpleasant stuff is happening, tell your doctor and, uh, you know, maybe there's a solution. I'll give you a really raw personal example. When I first started taking um, the first anti-anxiety medicine that actually, like, worked for me. I stopped being able to have an orgasm. Yeah, it's a big deal. And I was like, this is not okay. But I also feel so much better. I can't. So I just bit the bullet, even though it went against all of my like old millennial late Gen Xer style of like not telling people about that shit. I went to the doctor. I was like, oh, my God, like I can't, you know. And the doctor was like, oh, thank you for telling me. I can fix that. And what do you know? She puts me on another pill that like stabilizes the other pill and now I'm okay again. Yeah. And that's the thing is that like, I think maybe five years ago I would have just silently suffered until I couldn't take it anymore and then just stopped taking the pill and waited to have another meltdown. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? And yeah, we just have to talk about stuff more. Yeah. Especially with your doctor. Yeah. Like, but you know, you just don't like, I don't know. I think women especially are sort of not really given the license. You know, everybody cares about whether a dude can do it or not, but nobody really cares about whether girls yeah. can. So yeah. we're not really given that message that, you know, if you can't do it, you should talk to the doctor. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It is uh, something that needs to be. Yeah, you <laughs> you, you cur- think about it, right? You threw me a curveball on that right? one. But yeah, because I've had that side effect as a bail. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's like, it's uh, awful. And it's like, and you know, people should prioritize that because that can absolutely send you over the edge. Like, 100%. Yeah. Especially like, if you convince yourself, because, you know, I was doing the typical crazy person stuff and not even remotely attributing it to my medication and deciding that something was wrong with me. Yeah. It was broken forever. Yeah. No, you're mentally ill. Go to the doctor, yeah. dummy. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that. It's not, not that complicated. No. And I mean, obviously there's layers, right? You don't have health insurance. Yes. That is a yes. story for another day. But if you have the ability to go to the doctor, go to the goddamn doctor. Yeah. And tell them the truth. And if they're shitty to you about it, find a different one. Okay. It's true. You are in charge of your own health care. If you pay for your health insurance, that is your health insurance. Your doctor, it should be taking care of you, not telling you what to do. Exactly. Yeah. You got to speak up for yourself. 100%. There's been times people wanted to, they wanted to put me on stuff, and I'm just like, no, I'm not no. doing that. See, my doctor practices what she calls patient-directed uh, care. So basically, like, if I want to try something, like medication or otherwise, I'll come in and tell her, and then she will research it and do my blood work and determine if she thinks it would be safe for me to try. And if it is, she'll prescribe it because yeah. it's not her decision and if I need a medication or not. It's her decision to tell me if it is safe. Yeah. For me, and yeah. if it might work for what I want, right? Yeah, isn't that what we pay them for? Not their opinion on whether or not I should take that med. Yeah, should be whether or not I can. Yeah, I'm I'm not any fun for healthcare providers. Trust me, <laughs> <laughs> I no. ask a lot of questions. No, that's good. That's good because yeah, they do work for you and they make a lot of money. Exactly. So. Hmm. I know we've taken up like yeah. I was like, I think I gotta I wrap up. We do. We wrap up. But I appreciate it you taking the time. Yes, and cut. I'm a sorry, bunch I, of it out. I'm sorry I didn't tell you about the the camera situation. Yeah, <laughs> see, that's another thing, listeners. The reason there's no clips, although I'll have to send you my nice headshot. I've got yeah. my business Barbie headshot. There you go. 
I showed up looking like a house troll because I'm old and I thought podcasts you only listen to. So I like I've like generally speaking, <laughs> you're right. But well, I should have known. You know, it's 2023. You have to video with everything. Yeah, <laughs> that's all right. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was great. I got awesome. to hear some great stories. I'm all all about a good story. So yeah, well, I've got lots more. So just.